You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Good morning, City Edge. It uh, sounds like it's working. Yep, it's working. Um, as you, you're aware, Dad's not with us today to um, to preach, so I'll be bringing the word. And uh, we're taking a bit of a detour from the expositional preaching that Ian's been doing, which has been excellent through uh, the Gospel of John and just recently in Genesis. Uh, we're going to be doing a bit of a, I guess, a theology study, I suppose. Um, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, we're going to be hopefully learning about the doctrine of the Trinity. So before we delve into it, um, ask yourself a few honest questions. Number one, do you believe the doctrine of the Trinity yourself? Lots of people believe things out of tradition or habit without giving much time, effort, or uh, to understanding the claims and implications of a given belief. Um, I would really hope your answer is a resounding yes, but if you've got doubts, hopefully today we might be able to address some of those. Second question, are you confident in your understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity? I've got a loosely held view that most Christians will affirm their belief in the Trinity, but their language and especially the way they pray suggests that they have not really grasped what Trinitarian, uh, Trinitarianism actually is. Uh, to prove this point, I think I've uh, got a bit of evidence here. A 2020 theological survey conducted by Ligonier Ministries, you've, you've probably, most of you probably heard of Ligonier Ministries, uh, titled The State of Theology. They, they do a survey every few years um, asking theological questions and getting people's responses to their thoughts on those questions. Um, these two statements, I think, help highlight uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at there. I think statement two reads, there is one true God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, of the respondents who claim to be evangelical Christians, 94% strongly agreed with this statement, and another 2% somewhat agreed. So that's a really good start. 96% of professing Christians affirm Trinitarianism. Statement 6 reads, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Again, only referencing the evangelical Christian response, 65% of respondents either strongly or somewhat agreed with that statement. Even scarier is statement seven, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, to which 30% of evangelical Christians agree. So 30% of professing Christians deny that Jesus is God. It's a, a pretty scary thought. The third question to ask yourself, would you be confident to define and defend the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture? In some senses, it can be easy to believe something. It can also be relatively easy to understand something, but it can often be difficult to explain or defend that same belief when another person isn't already sold on the truth. Think of the difference between learning a topic and teaching a topic. Now, before we get into it, um, a few brief disclaimers. I'm by no means an expert on the subject. Uh, I believe the doctrine of the Trinity, but I'm not a Bible scholar. Um, there is nothing with what we're about to go through today that is original with me. 
Now, I fully appreciate that much of the work of really delving into Scripture, understanding its teachings, discussing, debating, analysing, reviewing, even naming and defining scriptural truths have been done by giants of the Christian faith for the past 2,000 years. We are the beneficiaries of the work done by the Holy Spirit and His people throughout church history. I would be really cautious of anything that I say that's genuinely original with me. If it's, a, if it's original with me, it's probably a sign of departed from the faith once for all deli- delivered to the saints. Um, and the wording of the definition I'll be using today, as far as I'm aware, was formulated by Dr. James White. Um, some of the biblical evidences and arguments I'll be presenting, I've learned from him too. If you want to delve into this further, uh, he's got a great book called The Forgotten Trinity, which is excellent at defining and defending uh, the doctrine of the Trinity scripturally. And it's aimed at Christians who, under- who want to understand and believe this beautiful doctrine. And the final little disclaimer, I think as we'll see today, the only real reason to understand, believe and defend the doctrine of the Trinity is because you believe the Bible is the word of God. Unless you believe that all scripture is inspired or breathed out by God, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3, unless you affirm that only scripture is a sole, infallible rule for faith and practice, and also that all of Scripture acts as the sole, infallible rule of faith and practice, then there's little reason to have any allegiance to this biblical doctrine. If your aim is to understand and submit to what Scripture says on this topic, I really hope and pray that, uh, that today's sermon will be encouraging to you. So let's start by defining the Trinity, and I'll just have a quick drink. Again, this, uh, this definition is from The Forgotten Trinity by Dr. White. Quote, Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, every word in this definition is vitally important. And it's worth spending some time just mulling over what's being said. So I'll say it one more time. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's a few things I want you to notice here. Number one, when speaking of the oneness of God, we're speaking of his being. When speaking of the threeness of God, we're speaking of the persons. We are not saying that God is three beings in one being. We are not saying that God is three persons in one person. We see that each of the three persons are co-equal and they are co-eternal. And we also see that there's a distinction in the persons. One is the Father, one is the Son, and one is the Holy Spirit. I've heard it spoken of in these terms, so hopefully this will help you grasp the concept. The Trinity is one what and three who's. So there is only one what of God. That is what makes God, God. His essence, the things that are definitional of God. But there are three who's of God. That is, there are three distinct persons that each share this single indivisible being, the the what of God. The being of the Father is the same as the being of the Son and the Spirit. There is only one being that is God. 
There is only one uncreated being. There is only one omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, sovereign being in all of existence. But this one being has revealed himself in scripture as three distinct persons. So that probably raises a question in your mind, I expect. What is the difference between being and person? And to be totally honest, this is probably the hardest question when it comes to Trinitarianism. It's not something to shy away from. It's usually the place most people go wrong, um, both when trying to understand it, but also when people are fighting against it, trying to debate against Trinitarianism. An example, and again, this is courtesy of Dr. White. Let, let's say you throw a rock, and to your surprise, it hits someone in the head and they die. The only reason the person felt the rock, or that it did any damage, was because the rock had being. It existed, it was hard, it was heavy. It's what makes a rock a rock. A feather has a different being, different attributes, and you would probably struggle to throw a feather in the first place. The rock might be collected and bagged up as evidence, but the rock isn't sitting in the defendant's box being trialled for manslaughter. You are. Why? The rock might have being, but the rock doesn't have personhood. You have both being, which is entirely different to the being of a rock, but you also have personhood, such as thoughts, desires, and agency. Now, a word of warning, though, and I want to be upfront with this. I've got a different view on this particular topic than, than Ian does, this particular warning. Um, so take what I've got to say here with a grain of salt. But I personally believe that analogies of the Trinity are not helpful. Not only do they not help, I firmly believe they actually harm your understanding and move you away from biblical truth. So why would that be? Firstly, we need to agree that God is fully and entirely unique. There is no other being. There is nothing in creation like God, especially when it comes to his triune nature. So if God is fully and utterly unique, how can an analogy which must use something in creation in order for you to understand its meaning in the, to, to begin with, how can that point you towards an uncreated and wholly unique being? Let me show you what I mean by using two common examples, and you've probably heard these examples. You've probably used them yourself. The first one is God is like water, which can be solid like ice, liquid, or gas like steam. Um, or, number two, God is like a man who was a father, at the same time, he's also a son, but he's also a brother. While both of these analogies initially seem to make sense, they both suffer from the same problem. They both teach an ancient heresy known as modalism. Now, we'll come back to a few of these heresies later on, but in my view, I don't think teaching heresy moves us closer to biblical truth, which is one reason why I don't like analogies for the Trinity. So what are the three biblical truths? And Connor, if you don't mind sharing that first diagram. There are three biblical truths. Yep, yep, that looks like it's coming up. Three biblical truths that go towards understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. And the first... Biblical truth. Again, this, this diagram is courtesy of Dr. White. The first biblical truth, the foundation of the triangle, which hopefully you're seeing on your screens there, is monotheism. 
There is only one God. We do not believe in more than one God. As a side note, um, culturally there's a view that Mormonism is a type of Christianity. After all, they're called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you understand Mormonism, they are quite literally the most polytheistic religion ever created, even more so than Hinduism. True Christianity actually has a lot more in common with Islam than it does with Mormonism. Because one of the first and most fundamental beliefs in Christianity, Islam, Judaism, is monotheism. We believe in one God. The second biblical truth on the left-hand side of that triangle is that there are three persons. As we saw with our definition, Trinitarianism affirms that there are three distinct persons within the one being that is God. These persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the third biblical truth is the equality of persons. Finally, we must affirm, as the biblical authors do, that each of the three distinct persons are indeed co-equal and co-eternal. They are each fully God. So you can end that screen share now if you don't mind. So, let's now open up the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about truth number one. Monotheism. We believe in one God. Now, I'm going to go pretty quickly through the scriptures because I've got quite a few for these different points. Um, Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Deuteronomy 4, 35, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Um, as Ian and, and I've pointed out in the past as well, in your, when you're reading your English Bible there, where you see the word LORD in all capital letters, capital L-O-R-D, usually O-R-D is smaller in font size, that's just tradition, that's replacing the, the name of Yahweh with the word LORD. So to you as shown, you might know that Yahweh is God, there is no other besides Him. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, everyone probably knows this, Hear, O Israel, the LORD our God, or Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-nine. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse uh, 22, and actually 1 Chronicles 12, 20, both of these verses are almost identical. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Psalm 86, verse 10, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Isaiah 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. If we jump across to the New Testament, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Um, I've cut it down a little bit here. Um, but actually, no, I won't read it. Um, Jesus' interaction with the scribes. Um, he doesn't use Deuteronomy 6, 4 and try to re-explain it to mean a plurality of gods. He confirms there is one God. So Jesus himself, claiming to be God, confirms there is one God. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, 
we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we've gone pretty quickly. We're just trying to sort of prove scripturally the biblical truth of monotheism. There is one God. Truth number two, three persons. We believe in three persons. Now, we've already seen with the previous passages that there is only one God. The contentious issue of Trinitarianism is not monotheism alone. After all, Islam and and Judaism affirm that too. Where Christianity differs is on the personhood of the Son and Spirit and in their sharing of the one being that is God. Uh, So that is where we're going to focus now. So, firstly, on the deity of the Son, hopefully this should be pretty quick and easy. If you've been paying attention, (coughs) excuse me, um, through Ian's uh, sermon series through John's Gospel, um, I regularly find myself sort of chatting and laughing with Jenna after most of Ian's uh, sermons through John's Gospel, saying something along the lines of, how can people seriously claim Jesus uh, never claimed to be God? We've seen Jesus healing and doing other miraculous works, but we also see prophets and apostles do similar things. We don't see prophets and apostles forgiving people of their sin, which is what Jesus does. We've seen Jesus claim to the Jews in John chapter 8, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They then pick up stones to stone him, and it seems like an overreaction until you understand the words, I am. The Jews understood their scripture. They understood Jesus was saying, I am Yahweh, that one God we spoke about back, back before in uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. One of Jesus' favorite titles for himself is the Son of Man. Often our hears hear that and think, well, he calls himself the Son of God. He also calls himself the Son of Man. Therefore, it's just Jesus claiming to be both God and man. In reality, that's Jesus claiming the title from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus existed, which are the next verse points, Jesus existed um, before anything else, and he existed as the creator and sustainer of all things. As you, you probably recall, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 17, verses 3 to 5, Jesus speaking, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice the personal pronouns Jesus makes use of when addressing the Father. 
They knew you. I glorified you. Glorify me in your presence. It's one person speaking to another person. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. This is a passage on humility. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look to his, uh, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ask yourself this question. Is it a sign of humility for a creature, you or I, to not count equality with God something to be grasped? Absolutely not. That's just the reality. But it is a sign of humility for the Son, who has been perfect, who has been in perfect and eternal unity with the Father and the Spirit, in majesty and glory, to not grasp at this glory and instead make himself humble, born as a man and dying on a cross. The point is, Jesus is God, but he laid down that glory and those benefits to serve and to save, and then be restored eternally to that glory. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, Next chapter, Colossians 2 verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um. A brief excursion, but we can see that Scripture teaches plainly that Jesus is God. It also teaches that Jesus doesn't consider himself to be the Father, but to be the Son. Jesus seems to understand that he is one with the Father, but he is not the Father. So we'll move to the deity of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see in the following Scriptures that the Holy Spirit's role is different to the Father's and different to the Son's. We will see there's a person, that he is God, but that he is not the Father or the Son. Um, We see, first of all, the Holy Spirit involved in creation. Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Psalm 36, verse 6, we see Jesus sends the Holy Spirit when Jesus ascends bodily to heaven, which is what that uh, that, that passage is about. John 14, Uh, 15 to 17, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I'll ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And now, when I sent this to Ian for, for vetting prior to today, he pointed out that um, there are two Greek words uh, for the word another. One meaning is another of a different kind, and one is another of the same kind. The Greek word used here is another of the same kind. <clears throat> John fourteen twenty five to 26, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance that I, uh, all that I have said to you. We see the Holy Spirit involved in regeneration. John verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, speaking to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. <clears throat> Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, in Acts chapter 9, Paul's about to be regenerated, but he's already encountered the glorified Christ and been made blind. Acts chapter 9, verses 17 to 20. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. It's interesting that one of the first things Paul does, after being born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, is to proclaim, proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. We see in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit is responsible for giving gifts to the church as he wills. I'm not going to go through it. It's a pretty big chapter. Now, so far, we've briefly seen the things that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do are things that only God can do. But we've also seen that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not one and the same person. So we'll move to the third truth, the equality of the persons. And this final truth is, it's really a summation of the other two, really. If each of the three persons of the Trinity share a single, indivisible being, there cannot be an equality between the persons. Each one is fully God. If there were to be an inequality, we must therefore be speaking of polytheism, and we're no longer in the bounds of Christianity. Now, a little more context on this. Um, I might be wrong, but it's my view that uh, this particular area of Trinitarian theology can be uh, somewhat confusing to people. On the one hand, we claim that Jesus gives up his glory and humbles himself, and that Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. And then we also go on to claim that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal. 
without laboring the point, it's important to also add um, just a bit more context so we can see what we mean by that. When referring to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in isolation from their works in creation and in time, it's true and accurate to say there is no inequality between the persons. In this regard, we are referring to the nature of the being of the Trinity. When discussing concepts in relation to the being, what makes something what it is, we're speaking within a category called ontology. So, ontologically, there, are, there is full equality of persons. However, God, as three distinct persons, also act within time and space. God's actions within time and space are discussed within a separate category to ontology, and this one's called the economic trinity. When speaking within the category of the economic trinity, we see plainly that the Father gives the Son a people to be his bride. The Father sends the Son to redeem his bride from sin and death. The Son humbles himself and is born as a man. The Son is crucified and gives up his life to redeem his people. The Spirit is sent to convict the world of sin and to regenerate those for whom the Son died. The Spirit ensures his people are conformed to the image of Christ. It's worth bearing in mind, lest we start to consider Jesus or the Spirit as lesser deities or semi-gods, given their roles within creation and redemption are not the same as the Father's. Um, And a few years back, there was no small controversy when some of the world's leading Christian theologians, most of whom you'd probably heard of before, um, basically had a, a bit of an argument. Uh, it was called the eternal functional subordination or eternal submission of the Son debate, which basically says that because Christ submits to the Father in the economic trinity, he must also be ontologically submissive, which means the Father is a greater deity of some sort. So, where is the Trinity in the Bible? Well, there aren't any Trinitarian proof texts that will dismiss all questions. If you want to find the Trinity in the Bible, there are two ways to go about it. Number one, um, as Dr. White says, if you've got a hard copy Bible in front of you, if you open up to Malachi chapter 4, with a physical Bible, after verse 6, there's probably a blank space and the gutter of the page between Malachi 4 and Matthew chapter 1. The doctrine of the Trinity was revealed in this period of time between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. Consider that the men who wrote the books and letters that became the New Testament were writing years or decades after the death and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These men were experiential Trinitarians, They knew the Father clearly from the Scriptures. Most had been direct disciples of the Son as he fulfilled his earthly ministry, and all were now indwelt by the Holy Spirit following the ascension of Christ. It's from experiential knowledge of the Trinity that they wrote their Gospels and Epistles. The second one, the more rewarding but labor-intensive approach, is to delve into the Word of God briefly like we've done today, to look at those three biblical truths, monotheism, three persons, and the equality of the persons. Um, Just before we wrap up, we're going to do a couple more things here. We're going to quickly look at some common Trinitarian heresies. Um, On the odd occasion, it's uh, sometimes easier 
and sometimes clearer to say what something isn't than it is to explain what something is. It's for that reason I think it's worth briefly looking at a few Trinitarian heresies to be on guard for. And if you don't mind, kind of just doing a screen share of that second diagram. So as you can see with that triangle, we, we saw before that basic biblical truth monotheism on the foundation, three persons and equality of the persons being the other sides of the triangle. If you were to reject the foundation, if you were to reject monotheism, on the opposite side of that is polytheism. That's the resulting heresy. If you say that there are three persons and they're all equal, but you reject that there's one God, you're left with more than one God, the heresy of polytheism. If you reject that there's three persons, but you maintain that there's one God and they're equal persons, you're left with modalism, which is that heresy I mentioned earlier before, and we'll go through a bit more in detail in a second. If you reject the equality of the persons, but maintain monotheism and the three persons, you're left with subordination, which was that other um, argument that came up a few years ago. So you can probably end that uh, screen share if you don't mind, Connor. Modalism is probably one of the most common Trinitarian heresies, and it basically says there is only one God and one person of God, but that person, that one person, presents himself in different modes, such as the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Almost like one actor playing three characters or wearing three different masks. A second heresy is Unitarianism which can sometimes be similar to modalism, but basically it's the rejection of Trinitarianism to say that God is one being and one person. Um, obviously, Islam and Judaism are Unitarian religions, but there's also a growing cohort of people claiming to be Christians while holding to Unitarianism. Um, Israel Folau is one of these people. You might might be surprised to hear that. Rejects the Trinity. Um, partialism uh, teaches... Basically, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit make up one third of God, and thus the being of God is divisible into parts. So each person is only part of God, kind of like the three-leaf clover analogy. Um, one leaf of that three-leaf clover is not the three-leaf clover, but all three together make the three-leaf. It's one reason why that analogy, again, is a form of heresy. Number four, Arianism holds that Jesus was the first and greatest of God's creations, but not God in and of himself. And this is the view that the Jehovah's Witnesses hold. So why would we spend all this time briefly digging into the weeds of Trinitarian theology anyways? I think there's a few reasons um, for, for going into it a bit deeper. Number one, um, I think it's hard to truly love, worship, and follow a God you don't really know. That's not to say that God doesn't forgive bad theology, because God is much more gracious, gracious than any of us realize. But at the same time, there's also a level of truth to that. I don't believe we'll see Mormons in heaven because their theology teaches that Yahweh is just one of an unlimited number of gods, and that by obedience to him, we can become gods of our own planets too. It's not enough to simply believe. We have to believe specific truths. 
I think that we too quickly forget that we're commanded to love God with our minds as well as with our hearts and souls. Number two, as someone who loves theology myself, my ears are attuned to theological talk and the one thing I tend to hear more frequently than I'm comfortable with is when someone says something along the lines of theology divides or theology puffs up or we don't need more head knowledge, we need more heart knowledge. I understand the sentiment. Uh, my own personal experience, especially over the past 10 or so years, is that the more I've learned about God, the more I'm humbled and awestruck and in love with him. My experience has shown me that talking, uh, sorry, taking theology seriously yields fruit in my desire and my passion to worship God. Number three, taking theology seriously does help to sort truth from error. That statement before theology divides is actually true. Good theology divides truth from lies. Good theology is like deep and stable roots for a tree. And when our culture demands that we buckle to its ways, our roots keep us upright with a desire to follow Christ, even if that means we lose friends, jobs, health or safety. It seems like every other week we're hearing of another high-profile Christian who has left their spouse or rejected Christ or buckled to the culture of, um, um, on very clear biblical truths. It seems like now more than ever, we need strong and deep roots as our beliefs become more repugnant to a society that hates God. Finally, and this is probably the most important reason why, salvation is a Trinitarian work. As I mentioned before, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. God the Son took on full humanity, forever uniting deity with humanity as he perfectly secured salvation for his bride. God the Spirit was sent to apply the work of Christ to each and every person that the Father had set, set apart from before the world began. Each step in our salvation has been secured by either the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. We're just recipients of God and God's grace working in us and through us, and we should be eternally grateful for that. So I'll just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for sending your Son sending your son in the likeness of human flesh. The humility that Jesus took on being born as a man after having spent eternity with you in the spirit. We thank you for that work, Lord. Jesus, we thank you for coming as a, as a man, as a baby, for being born, for living a perfect and righteous life for dying a substitutionary death on the cross for us, that bridge between sinful man and righteous God. We thank you for that, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you indwell believers today, that you convict the world of sin, that you turn our hearts toward Christ. Holy Spirit, we like the new song we sung today says, we don't often see you working, but we see the results. We, we know you're working, Holy Spirit, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are the deposit, the down payment 
of our inheritance that you will conform us into the image of Christ. Lord God, we thank you for our salvation that is in Christ. We ask you to bless City Edge Church, bless the hearers, bless people that download the sermon, bless the nations around the world that are suffering with this pandemic, Lord. And we ask you to, to, to call your people to Christ. In your name, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.